When we think about the president as this focal point for our discussion, we're, it's a little bit of a mistake to think about it that way. And we talked about kind of how much the Constitution defined the role of the president versus defined the role of Congress. Well, up until you get to the 1900s, it was really more of a congressional thing than a presidential thing. Uh, you know, people like Washington, Jackson, Lincoln, a bit notwithstanding, the role of the president didn't really come into its own until people like McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt and FDR. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast brought to you by Cartavera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business and grow your life. Today, we have a truly unique conversation with Jason Voyevich, because today we're going to talk about leadership lessons from the presidents. See, Jason has a really unique history of creating products, innovation, marketing, but he wrote a book called Marketer in Chief, how each president sold the American idea. Today, we're going to talk about leadership and innovation, but particularly in the context of history and particularly presidential history. We're going to certainly connect the dots between history lessons and leadership. We're gonna talk about risk tolerance, innovation and leadership, particularly in the Oval Office. We're gonna talk about the vital role of empathy in leadership and how it may be different for different presidents. We're also gonna talk about how important it is to consider historical leadership based upon the situation those individual leaders were faced with that are similar or different from our time. As a history lover, I love this conversation. We know you will as well. Leadership Junkies podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. We are excited to be back here today. And I have to tell you, I'm especially excited because we have Jason Voyevich with us. And why I'm excited is I'm going to just jump ahead in his bio. He says history is his favorite way to observe the world. <laughs> and I, I feel the same way. And I'm looking forward to a conversation today about leadership, about marketing, but through the lens of history and in particular, presidents. Now, Jason. You know, his day job, his life job is he has launched hundreds of products, everything from medical devices, virtual healthcare systems, non-dairy consumer cheese, the next generation alternatives to the dreaded cone of shame for pets, sex aids for cows. I, I may have to learn more. Uh, Jason is a, <laughs> Jason's a graduate of the University of Wisconsin and the University of Minnesota, Minnesota completed his post graduate studies at the MIT Sloan School of Management. And while he's had lots of formal training, what he says is true success from growing up in a family of artists, immigrants, and entrepreneurs. And they <laughs> taught him this, and I love this, how to care carefully observe the world, see the patterns before others notice them, and then use those insights to create new innovations. And I love that because Craig and I are both, we are pattern spotters. And yeah. So many people just don't pay attention to the patterns. They say, why is this happening again? 
Why, what are we missing? It's called a pattern. I'm going to wrap up with this. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about his book. Jason's book is called Marketer in Chief, How Each President Sold the American Idea. So welcome <laughs> to the conversation, Jason. Thank you, Jeff and Craig. I really appreciate being here. I'm excited for the conversation, too. I, I love people who are interested in history as well. And I find a lot of leaders, that's been my experience at least, that the best leaders I've ever met in my career have been those where we can have a conversation about history. They're observant. They look, you know, if you think about leadership, really, and all the sources of wisdom you can tap into, there's, yeah, everyone who's alive today and all those people and those leadership examples. But back in history, there are innumerable leadership examples you can point to. And if you're observant, uh, there's almost always an opportunity to learn from someone who faced a similar leadership challenge that you did. And that's why I like it so much is it's kind of, I kind of consider it a cheat code for me that <laughs> I can go in if I'm facing a challenge, the likelihood that someone else faced it in the past is darn near a hundred percent. I just have to kind of pull from the database of uh, books and, you know, kind of history that I read. And usually I'll find something that'll help me. So, Jason, before we jump uh, deeper into the topic, give everybody a little more of the background story. Yeah, well, you know, I started my career uh, thinking that innovation and risk taking and entrepreneurship, that that was all normal. That's just how people <laughs> did it. That's, you know, that's how I grew up. You know, uh, my dad was a creative director. He was a madman in the advertising business in the 60s and 70s. And I spent my summers going to photo shoots, meeting Tom Selleck, for example. He was on a photo shoot. You were doing that. Uh, you know, talking with clients about creative challenges at, you know, places like General Mills and Betty Crocker, you know, places like that. Uh, I thought that was normal. I sat in the corner, mostly quiet, uh, sometimes not. Uh, but everyone was okay with it. Uh, my mom, her side of the family, they came from, they escaped Cuba in the 1960s. And, you know, so for me, the conversations we had at the dinner table were different than <laughs> most people's conversations. Yeah. And it's one of those things when you think about risk-taking and innovation and that style of leadership, it's, it was something that for me was just a normal part. I, I thought everyone was like that. It took me probably until my 30s to really realize, no, most people don't think like that. And that's been a real challenge I've needed to overcome in my own leadership style is that most people don't have that same appetite and tolerance for risk. And how do I help them along? If we need to innovate, we need to do something new that's scary for most people. Uh, it may not be for me, it may not be for you, but boy, that's not a common trait. Well, Jason, let's go back to where you opened. You were talking about the importance of looking back to learn leadership, and you talked about someone else had learned the lesson. And what I find is often when I'm reading or studying about leaders historically, I'll come to this conclusion, like if they can lead through this, I can certainly lead through this. So not only are these lessons to learn, but some of the challenges, I don't know, they just feel a lot bigger than the challenges I face every uh, day. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, you know, I was, uh, I attended a talk from historian David McCullough. A lot of your, you might know who he is. A lot of your readers yep. may know who he is. 
Uh, he wrote the biography on John Adams on the biography 1776, that book. Fantastic. So, yeah. yeah, great, great books. One of the best living historians we have. And he got up there and he's kind of an older guy. He stood up there, no notes, no PowerPoint, no nothing for an hour, just did a lecture, uh, riveted everyone in the audience. And, you know, it was 2008 and he was talking about, you know, everyone was all worked up in a tither about John McCain and Barack Obama at the time. And it was the election season and everyone was in this. It's the worst situation we've ever faced <laughs> in our world. This the Great Recession. And he got up there and I like most good grandfathers and grandmothers said, hey, kids, let me tell you about something. You know, this doesn't even crack the top 10 on most difficult challenges the United States has ever faced. And he said, remember, you know, with John Adams, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, had they lost the Revolutionary War, they all would have been hung. Uh, uh, there is there is no doubt about that. There is everyone who signed that document, the Declaration of Independence, understood that, hey, if we lose, we're all dead. That's quite a bit different, frankly. Than, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a different sort of realization when you think those people who average age, George Washington was in his 40s, so kind of the old man of the group. Most of those people are in their 20s and 30s. Think about that for a second and being able to handle decisions like that when you were in your 20s or 30s. I that makes that gives me anxiety to think about right <laughs> but now. Think about the, the environment that they were in, but very yeah. much like you were, Jason. They grew up in this environment of we have to learn how to fend for ourselves. That's right. They they absolutely did. If you think about that era, uh, People were more self-reliant, not because they had some, you know, some deep-seated need to be more <laughs> self-reliant. They, you know, it wasn't a psychological thing. It was just the reality. You know, if just think about communication. We think today about, you know, the, you know, the communication we're on. We're in three different cities around the United States having a live conversation over video. Yeah. <laughs> in order for us to have this conversation in 1780. We would have each needed to travel probably four to six weeks to some central location, <laughs> either walking or on horseback. Wow. There's just there were no trains. There's no cars. There's no telephones. It's uh, you traveled. Information traveled as fast as a horse could ride. That was as fast as it got. Uh, you were lucky if you had some sort of waterway or canal that would speed things up a little. but. I just think about the different challenges we face today. And when I say, boy, how did John Adams handle this sort of situation? Mm -hmm. It gives you a little bit of that sense that, yeah, we, we got this. We can we can handle it. We can we can work through this. We'll be OK. Right. I have to say, you know, you're talking about studying history and I'm just I was listening to you, Jason. I was studying myself and looking at what I read. And I have a pretty good mix and I've kind of like 20 percenters. So 20% of the time or so I read fiction. That's mm -hmm. my escape. That's my break. That's my fun. Then about 20% of the time I'm reading leadership or a business book. 20% of the time I'm reading some sort of personal development book, learning about myself and how I think, how people think. 20% of the time 
I'm reading these days something about difference for me, um, some sort of ism. And then 20% of the time is story, his history. And typically it's about a leader and it's a biography or an autobiography. And I love the blend of that because it's not saying here's just this. It's let me bring all this together. Yeah. So talk about beyond, yes, we have lessons to learn. Sort of what's your mindset when it comes to bringing history forward with lessons? I think the, uh, a couple of things come to mind. And my, my reading history and patterns are really similar to yours, uh, Jeff, in terms of how uh, the different types of things I read. I think the best leaders are curious people by nature. And that's the one thing it's hard to fake. You know, if you were to say, okay, well, I'm going to have five different types of books I read, and I'm going to pick one from each category and treat it more like kind of an academic exercise and try to summarize the key points from each one. I, I, I can't, there's something about how if you're not interested in it, no matter how clear the takeaways are, they're just not going to come to you. I think there's something about finding a way to be passionate and interested in it is the key because that's going to kind of sneak past your defenses, all of the cognitive biases we all have to kind of ingrain a lesson. So I think for me, it's kind of curiosity without exception is what I've tried to cultivate in my own professional life. And it's easy for me. I, I, I admit that, that that's a, I lean into my strengths. You know, I remember reading Strength Finder. Uh, that's probably something that many of your listeners have, probably have some familiar with, familiarity with. What was transformational about that was the idea that, like, hey, you're going to have weaknesses. Make sure that they're mitigating, that they're not hurting you uh, actively. But get good at your strengths because those are the things you're going to want to spend time in. You're, you're going to be emotionally invested in those. And that's really, I guess, if I have a secret, that's it, is I know who I am. I know what kind of things excite me and interest to me. And I absolutely lean into those. And I make time every day to read and to do things I'm interested in. And I don't apologize for it. Sometimes those things have a business purpose. Most of the time, though, I can't identify a business purpose up front. Uh, and it only shows up years later when I think, oh, well, that's how that that's an interesting way to think about, you know, how how to think about the reproductive health of cows, for instance, <laughs> and think about how you would design a sex aid for a cow. Uh, you know, you have to be curious without exception, because most you know, most folks in an innovation context would think, uh, no, I'm just, I, I don't care about where my hamburger comes from. For me, I'm sort of interested in that. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's weird, but I'm interested. I'm, I'm glad you brought up that phrase. We, we talk about it a good amount. I don't know that we often talk about it in terms of a trait of leadership enough, which is curiosity, mm -hmm. that innate natural curiosity, because, you know, it seems to me that if I'm curious, not only is that about innovation and not only is it about studying, it's about means I'm going to be curious about people. I'm going to be curious about understanding their story. I want to listen to their story. I'm going to connect with people differently. If I live a life, I mean, for me, curiosity is fun. And I think, I think it is innate, but I also think it's something that can be developed. I do believe that. I think it's something that can be um, sort of opened up 
it doesn't have to be, I'm either curious or not. I think so too. I think curiosity is the foundation of empathy. And mm-hmm. empathy is a key lead is a key leadership trait. And I don't think you can be an effective leader long term without empathy and without really being understanding, wanting to understand another person's point of view. Uh, you certainly can't be a good advertising or marketing person. That's that's a ticket to the game. You are out of the game if you're not empathetic. So what about uh, Napoleon? Was Napoleon empathetic? Was Napoleon domineering? I mean, where, where, where did the empathy fall in for him? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think the popular image of Napoleon is as a decisive genius tactician and strategist. And he certainly was that. But when you read the deeper parts of his biography, what you realize is that at that era, the, Napoleon was a soldier's general. And when you read about him in Egypt, for instance, and how he connected and motivated his soldiers on the ground, how he kind of got in the mix with them, how he understood that they were from France and they were in a desert. And how was that? How were they reacting? How did how did he know when they needed an extra ration of wine uh, to get them through the day? That's so I I think when most people think about the generals and this is my problem with history from a uh, history in general, uh, one of the issues I have with it is it's uh, mostly a history of, well, what war happened and what general beat what other general and what you realize, two problems with that one. Yes, they're obviously important uh, events in our history, but what you forget is how was that general able to win, not just at a strategic or tactical level, but on the ground level with the soldiers who were actually firing the guns? And what happened in between those wars? It's not like people were kind of waiting around for the next war. You know, it's kind of like after World War One, were people in the United States waiting around for World War Two? <laughs> not really. Uh, mm-hmm. If you read the history of that era, they largely wanted to forget about it. And they really didn't care what happened in Europe. And they were concerned with their own lives at that point. So, uh, yeah, long answer to a short question, Jeff. I I liked it. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I just want to add one piece about the generals. I think think one thing we miss from this conversation, whether it's historical or leadership in general, is we forget about situational leadership. Right. You know, I just about six weeks ago did a video talking about comparing uh, George Patton's leadership to Omar Bradley's leadership. Both were effective where they were needed. One created more chaos than the other. It was probably unnecessary. And on empathy scale, I would argue that Bradley was much more empathetic. He was clearly the soldier's general. Patton did not display a lot of empathy. And then I look back and say, for me, who would I rather follow? I would follow Bradley. It doesn't mean what, so I think the challenge is to say successful equals good leader without getting into what was the situation. And I think that's translatable today because the situation has changed in the workforce. Are we leading appropriate for the situation? It's interesting you talk about that because I was just having a conversation with somebody who was at the battle of the bulge and he, he was, um, you know, many levels below Patton, but he was, he was there. And I asked him about Patton and he said, 
we were following him. You know, he was the guy that everybody wanted to be around and they, they had a love for him as a general. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned that Craig it's, uh, I think that's part of what curiosity and empathy helps you do is understand the situation you find yourself in and having enough presence of mind to be able to think about your leadership style and adapt that to the situation on the ground. What are what challenges are you facing and not kind of doing a 180 degree turn, uh, but how do you lean into different parts of your leadership style and lean away from others? You know, you mentioned Bradley and Patton. Uh, I mean, the other uh, general that you can't not talk about in that as far as kind of almost pathological lack of empathy is MacArthur. (laughs) You know, know, when you read, he was the kind of guy who talked about himself in the third person. And that's maybe all you need to know about this guy. Uh, And it was interesting that, yes, you know, he had a loyalty within the army, uh, but the Navy hated him. The Marine Corps thought he was uh, not only a psychopath, but a butcher. You know, this it's one of those things where don't talk to an old Marine about MacArthur. And I I know because my dad was one. Uh, He didn't fight. uh, He didn't fight under uh, uh, under MacArthur. He was a little uh, he was a little too uh, uh, young for that. But yeah, so I, I wonder, yeah, MacArthur was successful. But at what cost? And, you know, it's there's a whole story about MacArthur and Truman when Truman fired him uh, because MacArthur was his ego had grown to the point where, you know, he was there was a real not unrealistic uh, uh, issue where MacArthur may not not do a coup of the leadership, but definitely was angling for you know, a not a military takeover, but kind of maybe a run for president. It was it was a weird situation, weird time. And Truman needed to assert that authority over him. That was a a really odd situation. So, yeah, leadership, you know, situational leadership and empathy. Boy, I yeah, I think that how do you and this is a question for you, too. How do you separate success from a an objective you know you you launch the product or you you succeeded by some objective measure and the style you use to get there yeah absolutely it's something that we talk about a lot and ultimately we we don't want to burn up our people but some people will run through others i've seen it time and again but on the other hand i've also seen some really good leaders who gather the troops and enlist them in the process so that everybody feels it's a win for themselves as well as the organization. And, and I would say, Jason, I think the challenge is I, I'm, I'm a stickler for how I ask the questions. And the key is to look at that question of suggesting they need to be separated versus how are they integrated? Mm. Because, uh, you know, it's interesting. If you look at Patton, Patton was very successful in the battlefield. Absolutely. And, and some of the men did love him. I'm not doubting that. And the truth is Patton would sacrifice men's lives yep. to win the battle, literally sacrifice them. Whereas Bradley was focused on the objective, but saying, how can we achieve the objective and minimize our losses? Yeah. 
he was an and guy. And I feel like Patton was an or guy. It was win at all costs, and there is no or. And some men were very attracted to that. Let's jump back into the the leadership of the presidents and and where we came from there. I love the the opening of your book because you have your prologue where you're talking about you're setting up the story for Benjamin Franklin, who's one of my heroes, and how he got things done in France by being unabashedly American rather than fitting into their their culture. And then you you kind of fast forward and you talk about some of the presidency and how how some of the decisions that they make is really, you know, it's a, it's a lot about their communication. So why don't you jump off into that and, and talk a little bit about what is the marketer in chief here, from your perspective? I think the, when we think about the president of the United States, uh, the, that person, that leader has a number of roles, correct? In the US constitution, the commander in chief, the chief executive. But when you think about actually read the constitution, it's, Kind of a fascinating document. The you'd think, okay, well, it's the president, Congress, and the courts. And in the Constitution, they would define those three things kind of in that order. That's not how it's defined, by the way. Uh, Congress has about what 2,500 words in the Constitution define the roles of Congress. About half that much is for the president, about a thousand words. Think about that, kind of a long, you know, kind of a not so long blog post is all that defines <laughs> the role of the president. And then the courts, if, if I'm getting my math right, a few hundred words on what the role of the courts is wow. in the Supreme Court and that the judicial that, branch. From that perspective, that's fascinating. It, it's something about how they thought about it at that time. They thought that the, they didn't want another king. Yeah. Okay? And that was the big deal. So they put Congress at the beginning. So whenever you read about history of the early United States, and you focus too much on the presidents and not the situation around mm. them, you're getting a bit of a distorted view because the president's role grew over time. It wasn't really the central role in the beginning. It was really Congress that took the, the key role. So when I think about, well, what was the key role of the president at that time? Really, when you think about it, it was more of a communicator, more of a a little bit of a figurehead, more of a guide. And it's that sort of how do you kind of continue to crystallize this idea that we are this new country. But, you know, if you were to think about at that time, if you were from Virginia, you thought of yourself first as a Virginian. Hmm. Second, if you thought about yourself as a citizen of the United States at all, second, you were an American. And that was far down the list. It was kind of your state, maybe your city, what church you belong to, and seventh, eighth, or ninth down the list, you were an American. So the, that role of communicator, especially for those early presidents, you know, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, was all about not as much how do we, uh, how do we prosecute a war, uh, because aside from the War of 1812, which, you know, the United States got its ass handed to it. Uh, besides that, there really weren't those kind of military conflicts as commander in chief. It was all about how do we continue to crystallize this idea of the United States as this unifying force? So that's really the idea behind the perspective I take on uh, the president is 
What is their role as chief communicator, chief salesperson? That's not to say that's the only way to look at their history. Of course not. But it's a different one and one that is difficult for people to get their arms around. It's something they haven't really, most people haven't thought about. Well, you just made me think my curiosity just came up as you were describing. I never thought about this difference in words. And what hit me was, I wonder to what degree the number of words is based upon the level of trust. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Because you've got, you've got Congress, which is all of them. And they don't generally get, I mean, they've gone through a process If they've created something new, but there's a lot of distrust, frankly. And there's a lot of, uh, regionalism and statism. And I, I sense like we got to talk, we got to cover ourselves with each other. And then you got Washington's going to be the president. And right. I feel like with Washington, they went, they threw him the keys and said, here you go. We know you're not going to mess it up. Super high level of trust as a general matter. And then the court was sort of like, well, you ought to have somebody out here. I don't know. Now I'm just curious about to what degree the level of trust dictated the number of words in yeah. the constitution. Well, I- I think if you think about it, uh, you know, the the courts are a pretty old institution. You know, they largely borrowed from the uh, from the English system and the continental Europe system. So not a big deal there. It's they sort of all understood how courts worked or were supposed to work. And frankly, they the Supreme Court didn't even have a place to meet in the beginning. So just kind of get a sense for how important they thought it was. Courts were kind of a regional and state thing. That's how they wanted it. The Supreme Court was only there to handle things that the states couldn't handle. So they didn't think they needed to talk about that much. You're absolutely right on uh, President Washington. He was one of the only presidents elected essentially with no competition at all. Uh, Everyone knew he was going to be the president and that was okay. They did trust him. Absolutely. Not everyone liked him. Let's be clear. But they all trusted him uh, to a large extent. Uh, And you're right about Congress. If people think that today's political environment is contentious and that people are angry, uh, they just haven't read their history. Uh, There has not been a time where Congress got along. That just hasn't that those brief moments uh, like in the 30s where you had a uh, Democratic Party ultra majority uh, in Congress was such a rare event that it's. It's that it, it's so rare that it is interesting to talk about when they got along, not when they didn't. When they didn't is just that's well, that's normal. Well, it seems like there's I would say trust certainly seems like a big issue there, Jeff. I would also say, though, that when when they're crafting a new type of government, there has to be clarity on how things are working. And so going from a monarchy to this government by the people for the people is a very different take. So they had to be clear about how this whole mechanism worked. But to your point, though, Jason, the fact that it's just as long as a blog post, man, I don't I mean, the, the amount of crafting that went into every aspect of, of what they put together, you know, Jefferson and and everybody else going back and forth on that language. Incredible. I just I I think about think about the situation when you're it's very much like a startup sort of organization and kind of leading in a startup where you walk in. Yeah, you walk in and you think, okay, we've got this charter. We've done our Simon Sinek why stuff and we've got (laughs) our 
we we've outlined what we want to accomplish. Maybe you even have EOS and we've got this, yeah. <laughs> we've got our rocks and we kind of know, and you walk in, you sit down at your desk and well, no one's figured out the internet. There's no email addresses. There's no forms. There's nothing, absolutely nothing. And it's funny when Washington came to office, you know, Adams came to office. It's funny when you read some of the diaries from the folks, they're like, yeah, I had to create a form. There's no form. There is no like, how do you fill out the form that says we want something? How do you requisition, you know, pens and pencils and paper? There is nothing of that. So it, it gives you a certain sense for that leadership style, that comfort level with the risk and just what their actual day to day was like at, at, you know, in that kind of situation where uh, they didn't have secret service. There was no uh, John Adams was the first person to live in the White House and walked in through the front door, just walked in. <laughs> there was, you know, they had a few people kind of tending things here and there. But if you wanted to do something, yep, grab them up. <laughs> No, just very much. I think a lot of startup leaders who are listening to this will really empathize with, yeah. okay, yeah, I get that. That's my life. But see, at least with startup leaders, you've probably worked for other organizations. So you have a sense of how things should work. Right. You know, I mean, America was fragile at those points. And to your point in the book, the, the language that they used and every decision that they made was setting a precedent. Every decision was right. the first decision incredible amount of pressure on the leaders at that point. Yeah, it's it's terrifying, really, when you think about the we really lucked out uh, with those leaders yeah. were special people. Uh, they if really were we had some like that today. Uh, I'd, you know, when I think about not only the leaders that you hear about all the time, you know, and you hear about, you know, Washington and Franklin and the these presidents, but fascinatingly, in many cases, uh, for instance, Abigail Adams was as sharp and forward looking as her husband, and in many cases, a better leader than he was. Uh, so not only did we get, you know, outstanding presidents uh, at that time, the entire kind of corpus of people around them was outstanding. And right. people who really saw their place in history, when you read Abigail Adams' diaries and her letters back and forth to her husband, it is a case study in them struggling through these kind of questions. They have, we have thousands of letters from them, which is great. And there's some books you can read that curate some of those. But the back and forth they did, struggling with the kind of questions that leaders struggle with today. How do you handle this particular naughty you know, personnel decision. How do you figure out kind of really mundane things? And in the same letter, you know, it, it, in one letter, she was talking about, you know, kind of getting kind of everyday supplies, you know, logistics. In the same, talking about kind of the idea that if a king loses his people, he is no longer a king. But if the people lose a king, they're still a people. You know, that's in the same letter. As talking about, you know, like, yeah, we really could use more sugar. Uh, you know, when you think about the intellectual capacity yeah. of the people at that time, we lucked out in no uncertain terms. We had outstanding people uh, at that time. But we grew them. I mean, it was part of the environment, I think. 
it certainly did cultivate them. There's no question that, uh, but it was difficult when you think about Abigail Adams never finished formal education, Hmm. yet still uh, read widely, still understood her place in the society at the time, understood that she was living through something extraordinary. And people at that time placed in this extraordinary circumstance stepped up to that. And I think there's a leadership lesson in there that with a with a high quality enough challenge, people will step up to that, uh, you know, given the opportunity. She certainly did. And many, many people around them did as well. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. If you enjoy the Leadership Junkies podcast and you want to grow your leadership, we have a new course for you called Become a Confident Leader. In this course, we will share some of the keys to becoming more confident in your leadership and also to become more impactful. Go to cartavera.com slash confident to find out more. See you on the inside. Welcome back. Well, I'm, I'm curious about something, uh, someone that popped in my head as we, I was listening to you, Jason, is Lincoln. Yeah. And specifically, uh, it's funny because the thing, I, I'll just say this and I'll ask the question. I would hazard a guess that a lot of people, and I mean a lot of people, who would say, who, who would you say are the greatest presidents? And they name him. If you said why, they couldn't tell you a reason. <laughs> just because he's well known. Other than some sort of result, you know. Um, you know, they're going to say Lincoln saved the union. They're going to say Washington first. You know, they're going to go to this overall and not be able to talk about traits. And so the specific question that came about Lincoln is he, one of the things he's famous for is how he selected his advisors when he was elected. <laughs> yeah. And he selected advisors that were definitely not yes men. Right. In fact, what is the, what's that book called? Um, he's, he surrounded himself with people that were his opponents. Yeah, team of rivals. That was, team uh, of Dora, rivals was the yeah, book. Yeah, Doris Kearns Goodwin's uh, one of her books. Yeah. Excellent. It's a wonderful book. book. Wonderful book. So that's pretty contrarian today. Huh. And we talk about not having yes men, but I would say Lincoln was at the extreme in terms of presidents of putting advisors in place that were his opponents. Talk about that role in leadership. I think part of it is really understanding the situation Lincoln was in at the time. And you think, well, why would he do that? And was it some was it some thought Lincoln had about that? That's what he needed, that he made a conscious choice to bring in this team of people who would be at odds with each other and with him on a regular basis. And yeah, as much as I've read about Lincoln, you could you can make that case. But I think the situation had a lot to do with that as well. If you think about that, that was the union was breaking apart uh, at that time. So there was no certainty around that. He needed to satisfy a huge number of different constituencies within Congress, within different states, different areas. You know, uh, you know, the, the border state situation, the South, the North. How do you manage people who want full emancipation now, the ones who take more of a gradualist approach? I think Lincoln's cabinet reflects what was really happening inside the United States at that time. His cabinet is simply a reflection of the complexity of all of the different competing points of view that were really going on. I think now, in hindsight, we look back at that with a certain amount of inevitability, right? That, okay, well, of course, 
the union would be saved. Of course, slavery would be abolished. Of course, of course, of course, all of these things would happen. That was by no means certain at the time. It was a deeply held belief by a lot of Northerners that they should let the South go, that it wasn't worth it. Why, you know, economically, the South was failing on its own. If you read the economic history, it was maybe only a few years away from total collapse. Really? You know, the slave economy was collapsing with mechanization. If there's a wonderful chart I have in the book that has just the economic disparity between the North and the South. Hmm. And it's so ridiculous. It's not it. uh, It's almost like you think it's a mistake that economic output per person in the North is something like 10, 20 or 30 times what it is in the South. That's not sustainable long term. And many people in the North thought, just give them a few years. uh, They'll come crawling back. So I, I think what was interesting is once Lincoln had that cabinet, then the real question, I think the higher quality question is, how was he successful with them? Because that's where you get back to kind of that empathy. And the story I tell in the book about what made Lincoln interesting in that regard is Lincoln was hilarious. Lincoln was a really, really funny person, and he used humor as a bit of his superpower to diffuse some of those tensions that were inevitable in there. It's a really fascinating story. Well, so I, I really, boy, that's so, so layered. I love that, Jason. You started out today talking about, and you've talked a lot today about innovation and risk. And I would guess that there are people listening to this thinking, presidents? innovation <laughs> they might say risk in the sense of because they make bad decisions but I, i'm gonna say there's going to be some skeptics that believe that the presidency is a source of lessons on innovation so give us some more flavor to that yeah that skepticism is good by the way and i i think it's important the the framework i use in the book to help people understand kind of that innovation life cycle is diffusion of innovations. That's Ev Rogers, uh, you know, uh, innovation curve, early adopter, early majority, late majority. You've kind of seen that before. Most leaders are familiar with that. And really what I'm saying in the book is leadership and what innovation meant in different eras meant different things. Mm-hmm. So for instance, people ask, sometimes ask the anachronistic question, how would Ronald Reagan have handled the Louisiana purchase? Unfair question. <laughs> unfair question. And the reason it's unfair is when you think about Ronald Reagan with the United States largely at the top of its game, superpower, kind of military superpower, uh, economic superpower, the largest economy at the world in the world at the time, compare that to Jefferson's situation. Uh, is not doesn't really make a lot of sense in terms of you can't compare those two things. And that's the same as comparing, how do I compare a brand new medical device just coming out something totally new, like an artificial pancreas? How do I compare that challenge to a, you know, uh, the eighth generation of a heart stint and kind of the challenge that a leadership a leader faces there They are very different challenges, but they're both can be innovative. It just innovation means something different at that top of the curve than it does at the far left side. So that's when 
when you read the book and you think, well, how could Harry Truman be innovative? Well, he can be in his own way. It just it means something different than it did for Madison and Monroe. Yeah, good point. So let's let's give some people some examples because I love that. And I think innovation is similar to creativity in the sense I can acknowledge growing up and early in my career, I saw creative as traditional, you know, mm-hmm. art, draw. And I would say I'm not creative. Now I now get that I'm creative differently. I think innovation is very similar. So give us an example of what you'd consider an innovative president that may not fit the typical example. I'm sorry, yeah, not I, typical, but what we can get trapped in an example of innovation. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a good way to think about it. When I think about creativity and innovation, the best way I had it explained to me was creativity is like art. It's a personal expression or uh, you know something expressive of you, and you don't really care how other people react to it. It's just uh, you are expressing an idea. Innovation requires that other people uh, adopt that other people kind of play with you in the sandbox, you know? So, uh, so when I think about innovation, it had to change the game in some way. And that was the the challenge in each chapter of the book was figuring out how did each president change the game? And the one that people will not think of, and I promise you, they won't think of this is Calvin Coolidge. Hmm. Here's why. Because we don't yeah. think about Calvin very often. Because we don't think about think Calvin about Coolidge. He's a cartoon, no one ever, right? He's a cartoon, Calvin. Yeah, no one. Oh, what a great cartoon. Yeah. That was a fantastic. Bill Watterson's uh, Calvin and Hobbes, for those of you who yeah. aren't familiar, uh, buy those. It's fantastic. Uh, Calvin Coolidge was an interesting character, president during the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, kind, of, uh, kind of deeply conservative person. But what we don't realize, and it's because we've lived with what he innovated uh, since then, his presidency corresponded with the invention of modern marketing and advertising, a pack consumer packaged goods, gadgets, home mortgages, movie theaters, all of those sort of things. He partnered with Bruce Barton, the Bruce Barton of BBDO, the big ad agency that still exists. Uh, Well, one of those B's is Barton by the way, uh, he partnered with him to essentially package Calvin Coolidge as a president. So how did he do that? Mm. Hey, he was the first person to understand that, okay, Calvin Coolidge had a set of features that would mean different things to different audiences. He was the first person to segment different audiences. Remember, this is the time of women's suffrage, the first time women could vote in a presidential election. He thought, okay, how do I segment women voters? They're going to vote and be different than male voters. How do I, uh, how do I craft a different message for women than I do for men? How do I craft a different message for, you know, Black Americans than I do for white Americans? How do I do that differently in different states? How do I figure out how to create this image that one of the biggest issues at the time was how would uh, how would evangelical Christianity and business kind of get together? How would they, you know, how, you know, a lot of evangelical Christians at the time were sitting out elections. They didn't really feel that they should be concerned with temporal things. Hmm. What Bruce Barton did is he wrote a book called The Man No One Knew. So I might be getting the title just a little bit wrong. And it was basically cast Jesus 
in the role of CEO <laughs> and leading his disciples. And the whole idea behind that was to create this merger between the evangelical Christian class and the business class. When you think about the playbook that Bruce Barton created with Calvin Coolidge, it's essentially the Republican playbook. And it has been in evidence since then. Now, yes, you could say, well, boy, it didn't really work well during the 30s. That was an extraordinary time for sure. But if you think about past then, and the kind of enduring partnerships and kind of that enduring kind of target marketing using radio. People thought it was uh, FDR who first used radio. Nope. Calvin Coolidge was the first person who used things like fireside chats. Going back and kind of understanding that kind of innovation very often, it's not the people we think of. It's not the people we remember and that we create this image of this innovation. It was often the people kind of behind the scenes who did it first, who were the true innovators. And it was people like FDR. His skill was recognizing all of those different innovations and just turning them up to 11. That's largely what he did. But he didn't create most of those kind of innovations in communication. It was Coolidge who did. So in the sense of presidents and how they have their, their people around them, at what point did things start to shift from the president being all powerful to, or should I say, you know, like in, in the sense of George Washington, he was clearly there, he was, he was that man, but he had a lot of people around him. And then as, as we move forward, we start seeing the, the persona of president being, being much larger how much of that is still dictated by those around them versus the, the leaders themselves? You know, Craig, that's an interesting question. When we think about the president as this focal point for our discussion, we're, it's a little bit of a mistake to think about it that way. And we talked about kind of how much the Constitution defined the role of the president versus defined the role of Congress. Well, up until you get to the 1900s, it was really more of a congressional thing than a presidential thing. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, people like Washington, Jackson, Lincoln, a bit notwithstanding, the role of the president didn't really come into its own until people like McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt and FDR. And it's becoming more and more central ever since. But back then, it was really a sense where you needed to do something really transformational, really innovative to be to kind of rise above the din of the Franklin Pierce's and the Millard Fillmore's. Think about those. There are a lot of presidents in that era that are eminently forgettable. <laughs> I would I mean, not have been able to name them had, had you asked. <laughs> yeah, it's and that's the thing. If you if you ask people, Okay, name presidents in the 17 and 1800s. They could probably name three or four. <sighs> and that's about it. And there's a reason for that, too. It's not just that a lot of time has passed. It's a lot of those presidents, A, weren't that good, and B, didn't do that much, frankly. Uh, it's, uh, James Buchanan, for instance, is only famous for being the person before Lincoln. <laughs> uh, now, you talk about... Um, Benjamin Franklin and his control of the mass media. 
And then we kind of fast forward. And now today we know that, you know, the president has to be in control of mass media or has to have his fingers, his or her fingers in, in the mix. There's has to be some, some big switches. There's a lot of people in the middle there that probably had no clue about how to really leverage media. Yeah, it's interesting that Ben Franklin's lessons, many, many of them were lost to history uh, until the 1900s, until Hmm. people like Bruce Barton and uh, other kind of public relations and advertising people rediscovered them in the late 1800s, early 1900s. It's uh, when you think about if you were to ask someone in 1870 what they thought of Ben Franklin. they would have kind of laughed in your face that, oh, that bumpkin, uh, <laughs> you know, no, the, the one who did the almanac and a penny saved as a penny earned. What, what ridiculous stuff is that? And who helped it's, write the, the Constitution? <laughs> yeah, it's it, they just didn't have a really high opinion of it yeah. uh, because we they had become so much more sophisticated by that point. Oh, yeah, uh, right. It's it's interesting, though, that ever since mass media really took off and that really took off in the 1920s you couldn't not have a hand in the media you couldn't not be a media expert and be successful as a leader it just wasn't possible anymore so when you look at those presidents who got good at it uh coolidge hoover very surprisingly was quite good at media uh fdr was famous for it but every president thereafter Uh, had to get better and better and better at the media. And now we start to see kind of a return to controlled media where people are taking that lesson of Ben Franklin to heart where, okay, I can't rely on the fourth estate journalism to get my message out there and negotiate with them. I'm going to release my communication directly through social media. It's something Ben Franklin would would have approved of. Yeah, He would have said, why go through journalists? They're just going to mess up your message. You should do it straight. <laughs> yeah. uh, so when you think about what was Donald Trump's innovation, for instance, uh, well, you can like him or not like him, but you have to agree he was in the mold of a Benjamin Franklin. I want to control the media. Yeah. And by controlling the media, you control the conversation. And he was an expert at it. Uh, and that's why he's thinking about starting up his own social media company. <laughs> well, it's I've something Ben Franklin would have done. Absolutely. Classic entrepreneur, the classic entrepreneur. (laughs) Uh, So we're coming up on time here, Jason. And there's one more question I do want to ask you before we close out. Uh, I mentioned earlier the the curiosity I had about trust. And in the last year, probably just the last year to year and a half, um, I became aware of some things that I never knew, which I love, which was the amount of distrust extreme distrust between Washington and Jefferson Um, Hmm. that you look back at that time and say, well, they all got along. Not only did they not get along, my take from reading on Washington, Washington took a, he took a long time to learn the lesson, but learned that Jefferson could not be trusted at a deep level. I did not realize The quick context is Jefferson's basically for years was saying to Washington, I got your back. And he had was publishing articles in a magazine under not through his name. It was coming from him, trashing Washington. Wow. Trashing him. 
And Washington finally said enough and said, I'm not even going to deal with him anymore. So when people say, hey, everything's crappy, no. So can you talk a little bit about that from a trust perspective? Because we all know trust is such a key element of leadership. Yeah, it's a, uh, you're absolutely right on that reading of history that it wasn't just Washington and Jefferson. Uh, the funny, one of the funny stories I recount in the book is when Jefferson was president, he got a bit of his comeuppance. Uh, Aaron Burr, who was his vice president at the time, was conniving to create his own country out of a part of the Louisiana Purchase and was conspiring with the military governor of that province to wow. do that. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was essentially treasonous. Uh, well, he was tried for treason, right? He yeah, was tried, he absolutely he was, not was convicted, which is still kind of shocking because the yeah. evidence was compelling. Huh. Yeah. So I, when I look at trust, uh, <laughs> I think about, uh, boy, and I want to be, uh, I want to be rated PG with a phrase about how what goes around comes around and that karma is a B word. <laughs> and uh, you should be careful because when you do not give trust, you will not get it. And that's that story of Jefferson is really telling in that regard that, yeah, he was kind of undermining George Washington. Think about that. Think about the seeds you have to have in order to undermine George Washington. Uh, and, you know, when he became president, yeah, he had people in his administration doing precisely the same thing to him. So it's not to be naive about like, hey, you're giving trust out of a sense of naivete that other people aren't going to be, uh, you know, undermining you. However, however, you cannot get trust without giving it. And that's the lesson that I think uh, Jefferson learned too late in life, frankly. And it was one of the subjects when you read uh, Adams and Jefferson's letters back to each other, something his wife helped uh, Jeff and not Jefferson's wife, uh, Abigail Adams helped rebroker. Uh, was you hear Adams and Jefferson exchange letters on that about trust and about that sort of thing, and how as they get older, they realize that that was a huge mistake to you know to undermine each other at that time. And it's it's a fascinating era in history. And again, whenever we think that things are such a mess today. I, I just remind people to read the diaries and then you'll get a very different sense of what life was like back then. Well, I understand Jefferson and Adams were always at odds. In fact, died within what a day of each other or something like that. I mean, they both died the same, day. They they died died the same day. day, July 4th, July 4th, 1826. Yeah. Fif wow. You know, at 50, 50 years after the signing of the declaration of independence, one of those kind of mythology things. And the, the evidence is pretty good that they both did. It wasn't kind of anachronistic, you know, that it, it or apocryphal is the right word. Uh, no, they actually did die on the same day. And yes, for many years, they hated each other. Uh, Adams, like Trump, did not attend the inauguration of his successor. Wow. He left town. Uh, so you think, well, gosh, it was Trump who was the first person who ever didn't, didn't do that. Nope. <laughs> Uh, that happened. That precedent started early. Wow. Yeah. Well, 1776 is a great book. Good, good miniseries as well. Oh, um, yeah. Talking about Adams. 
Well, this conversation can go on forever. Yeah. Just, just remember this, folks, as you're listening. Yes, it is true. The vice president of the United States not only killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel, he conspired to commit treason. <laughs> yeah. Think wow. about the crazy. There's just a crazy amount of stuff going on. And uh, for all those people who, you know, kind of uh, – uh, watch the musical uh, Lin Miranda's musical on Hamilton. A great introduction to that era doesn't even come close to how messed up it really was. <laughs> <laughs> very true, very true. This wow. is so good, Jason. Yeah. I so enjoyed the conversation. I know our listeners not only will enjoy it, but take many seeds and and elements of uh, to bring into their own leadership and hopefully. My hope is that it stirs curiosity about history, because to me, when people say they want to they want to be entertained by a drama or even a documentary, go read about history. I mean, this is the story we're talking about here. You go, yeah. what? <laughs> That's worth reading. It's like watching uh, whatever drama you choose. So and I will it's say good stuff. In Jason's book, I, Jason, I love your your style of writing. I've, I've never actually seen the word persnickiness in a book before. So that's, that's pretty good. <clears throat> yeah, I, I will warn readers that the F word appears 44 times in the book. So uh, uh, just keep that in mind. Sometimes I'm, I come from an advertising background. Some of them uh, may have been needed. <laughs> uh, I would, I would argue that many, that my choice of expletive was warranted given the situation I'm talking about at the time, but I will let the reader be the judge of that. Wonderful. So, Jason, uh, we always want to give our guests an opportunity to highlight or promote something. What is that for you? I would, I would say the same thing both of you have talked about. Read history. Hmm. Just uh, that's what I would promote. Uh, I wouldn't even promote my own book. Uh, yeah, there are lots of I in the footnotes. I I talk about other books I've read to get you interested in them. I want you to read those as much or more than I want you to read my book, because that's really where the lessons come from and kind of getting that depth and interest. So go read David McCullough book, books. Go yeah. read Doris Kearns Goodwin. Go read the books that really talk about the historical scholarship that get in. And here's the, here's the, here's the how to tell if you've got a good history book. Okay. A good history book looks at original source documents, mm. the original sources. Bad history books don't. They rely on secondary sources. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay, well, that's biased. But that's historical journalism. Yeah. Okay, that's not history. Historical scholarship requires taking a look at the documents and the situation as it was at the time and telling that story not without a bias. We cannot be without bias. Uh, but being clear about what your bias is uh, when you do that. And I think a lot of history today gets a bit of a bad name because it is so partisan and so kind of it is explicitly going to tell a point of view. I have a deep suspicion of that because when you go look at the original source documents and you're choosing which ones to kind of bring in that's like being a leader and choosing which what evidence you're going to pay attention to and which you're not well that creates blind spots in leadership 
And you don't want that. Read the history from real historians. That's, uh, and they're usually the ones that aren't on the news. If a historian's on the news, they're probably not very good. <laughs> I agree with that. Yes. Uh, so Jason, what's the best way for people to connect with you? The best way, really, uh, they can go to marketerinchief.com, learn more about me, learn more about the book. But honestly, uh, the place I spend most of my time connecting with clients and connecting with professional colleagues is on LinkedIn. And the easiest place to find me is there. There aren't that many other Voyaviches in the world. <laughs> so you'll be able to find me pretty easily. Connect with me. I'm always interested in connecting with other curious people. So tell me what you thought about something I said on this podcast and let's connect. Let's talk about it. Let's argue about it. That's a lot more fun than trying to sell me some lead generation service. I get about 20 <laughs> of those a day. Right. So Jason, we always wrap up with a question and uh, in interest of time, I've got one for you today. And that is what's that one piece of wisdom to leave with our listeners? I think that some leaders believe that their most important job is to make decisions, to be the decider, to choose. And yes, there's a role for that. Uh, but only after all other options fail. Okay? I think the job of the leader, the best leaders ask the best questions. They ask higher quality questions. Because in my mind, a leader is someone who inspires others to action. That's my definition of leadership. And I suspect many, uh, yours, and I suspect it falls into the definitions of many people listening. If you're curious and you have that, you're cultivating that curiosity and empathy, you will naturally ask higher and higher quality questions because that's the only way you get to higher quality answers. And it's better if the people you're leading come up with the answers rather than you. Love it. Love it. We're both big fans of questions. So thanks for closing it out with uh, a great finish. And it's a wonderful conversation. So, so fun and got me even more curious to go back and study some more presidents and history. Yes. So thank you, Jason. You're thank welcome. You. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciated the conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to your favorite podcasting app, rate us, give us some comments, share some love. It helps us to get our message out to more people. Thank you so much. If you enjoy the Leadership Junkies podcast and you want to grow your leadership, we have a new course for you called Become a Confident Leader. In this course, we will share some of the keys to becoming more confident in your leadership and also to become more impactful. Go to cartavera.com confident to find out more. See you on the inside. The world's best known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. 
Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.